In the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus Christ is shown as the true King of all creation who ushers in the Kingdom of Heaven. Matthew's Gospel also gives us a clear and powerful picture of discipleship with all of Jesus' radical demands on his followers in this hostile world. Let's pray before we begin. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going through the series of Matthew, and today uh, the title is called The Price Fight. And I don't know if you're familiar with this kind of language, but the language that I wanted to kind of portray is a lot of times we would look for um, some kind of big event. This is something like a setup of a big event, a big event that happens where two uh, opponents would come together, uh, see themselves in the boxing ring, and then we see who uh, the victor is. I'm going to spoil the ending. Jesus wins. Yeah, Jesus wins. So Jesus wins in this one. But a lot of times when we read stories like this, this is a familiar story. And so we come into a story like this with already preconceived notions, stereotypes. And I have said a lot of times, I call this embedded theology. It's embedded uh, because it's been kind of traditionally passed down to us and not deliberate meaning this is what we see in the word. Let's study the word together. So what happens if, if everything is traditional, then you come to a story like this, it's like I already know the story. Time to go to sleep. You know, time to just uh, shut down. But I want to encourage you and urge you as we read just these 11 verses, uh, let's open up our minds and let's ask God. This is why we pray before. Open up our minds, God, and so that every time we look at your word, we can see your breath breathing on us. And so, what's an example? Example, there are three kind of big characters here. What are the three characters? We see Jesus is one character, and then the devil is another character, and then another character that's mentioned here are angels. So we'll start with the angels first. Do angels, so when I say angels, what do you guys immediately think of? Um, White robes, Korean, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, when you think of angels, what do you immediately think of? A lot of people will say wings, right? Uh, in the Bible, do, does, do angels have wings, though? And that, that's a good question, isn't it? In the Bible, is there any place in the Bible where an angel has wings? And the answer, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the answer, and you might be thinking, you can Google it, but the answer is no. There's no place. In fact, what we have thought of now is embedded. So all this time we thought angels. Oh, you know, if something happens, then an angel gets their wings. Or I wish I was awesome like angels and fly around with wings. And you just thinking about it, it's like where in the Bible does an angel have wings? Zero places. But there are heavenly beings with wings like the seraphim and the cherubim. And the cherubim and the seraphim have wings. And the cherubim uh, was mentioned in Ezekiel and Genesis. Remember with the whole, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus with the whole ark and cherubim with the flashing sword, seraphim. So they have these things um, in the seraphim, which just means flaming being or serpent. So you would think like, oh, even the wings that we thought of might be embedded. It might be passed down to us from what? From what? Right. So when you th when I say the word cherubim, a lot of people think cherub, 
and they think of immediately like a baby angel with wings. Where do we get that from? And it's most likely from Greek mythology, Cupid. Cupid is like this god of love, like a baby adolescent with wings. And so we automatically think of cherubim as this baby with wings. And there's nowhere, there are no babies with wings in the Bible, like zero places. And so even think about it. Why would a spiritual being need wings anyway? These are spiritual beings. Every time an angel did come on earth to give a message that they have wings, they, they actually look like us. In fact, right next to you can be an angel. Go look at them and say, hey, angel. No, I'm just kidding. Don't say that. But people didn't know. People didn't know if it was an angel uh, because they had wings or anything of that nature. I kept on thinking about it. And, you know, what made us possibly think angels would have wings with feathers too? If you think about... You know, word etymology, and you go down. I don't want to go too long into this, but why not bat wings? Because, you know, Batman is the better superhero. Why not bat wings? Why not like reptilian wings? Uh, why is it always feathery wings? Why are there feathers, first of all, on a spiritual being? There are no feathers on spiritual beings. So when we get that in our head, I want you to just, you know, it's from the very beginning of Matthew. If you've been with me trekking along with us, and I want you to think like this too. Everything that we thought of, let's just go back to the Bible and see what the Bible says. And if the Bible doesn't say it, let's just say this is extraneous. And this is not necessary for what the Bible is trying to teach us. It's a dangerous thing to continue to add stuff to the Bible that isn't. And we start putting in pictures that wasn't there. And so when it, even when we think about all these things and angels will, you know, when it was read, angels will capture you. We automatically have this picture like this grandiose, like, like this house steeple. I don't even know where that comes from. Why is, it, why is the temple colonial? Uh, but is it, and then Jesus like looking down and angels is flying all over the place with wings, getting ready to catch Jesus. And so we really have these pictures in mind. And I'm telling you, that's not from the Bible. That's from Greek mythology. That's from these other things and not the Bible. And so when we look at this, we see that there's a lot of stuff that we may insert in here but let's not start inserting. Let's just, let's just take out. Let's exposit what's been put in uh, from the Bible. What about the devil? When we think of the devil, we automatically think of what? Um, a lot of people think red. I don't know why, but we think red. Some people think reptile or like some kind of scaly thing, um, probably because of Genesis. I'm not going to go back to Genesis 3, but that's fascinating, first of all, because Okay, I'm not going to get into it, uh, but we think of that. And after the Renaissance period, after middle, medieval times, they took out the scales and they started drawing the devil another way. They drew him as, or it as a monk. So you would see like this uh, garb with a hooded garb over, and that would be the devil depicted. So you may see even pictures of this part, the testing of Jesus, or temptation of Jesus with like this monk-like dark figure and Jesus walking, and angels' wings flying all over the place. So these are pictures that have been put in us, and there's a, there, 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 there are obviously reasons for it, and now we've taken it and adapted it, and now, like, you know, if you're an evil Sith warlord in Star Wars, you look like a monk because you're the devil, right? So we've adapted it even to our own fictions. There's nothing new here, folks. And so we've continued to put it in our imagination, but kind of inserted it in the Bible. 
But I'm telling you, the reason why this is important that I kind of debunk this from the very beginning before we even start is that evil is way more mysterious than you think. And this is what we're going to explore today. Because the first thing that Jesus does after he gets baptized is this, what happens here. And what's in that baptism? We learned last week, baptism is not just, and Pastor Paul said, it's not just um, a small change. It's not just a big change. It's a complete change. It's a complete turning around from what you were to God. And this is kind of interesting because in the end, Jesus gets baptized. But in, when Jesus gets baptized, God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. There is an affirmation of identity in baptism. It's just, it's just insane. It's just amazing that in just in these short three chapters, there's so much to it. And one of the things that I thought would be awesome was even after like we go through a sermon, we could have studies and just go into the Bible all day. You know, just 11 verses, we could, we could literally go all day. And but the first thing that Jesus does or what God does to Jesus after being baptized, saying, this is my son, is gets tested, gets tested or gets tempted, depending on your translation. And so what is going on here? And so what we see here in this word, uh, and I said tested, tempted, the Greek word is perazo, and it's not just tempt, and I think in this sense, the Korean language has it really down really well, and Eastern languages have it down well. It, it, it does mean test. It's an examination. Peirazo is an examination. We translated attempt because it's like a test that you would try to fail someone with. So it's like attempt, but it's really a test. And test, peirazo, um, is to really find out someone's true nature or character. Why would I give you a test? To see if you actually know your stuff. And tests are difficult. That's what tests are. And this is what Jesus is going through. Jesus is going through a difficult examination. If tests were easy, even in our language, in our culture, if a test was easy, we go, this was a joke. It wasn't a test. It was a joke. Because we know in our hearts, tests are supposed to be difficult. So this is the test that Jesus is going to go through. Adam failed the test. Abraham failed the test. All these people are continually failing, ultimately test after test. And then we see here Jesus come, and he is now tested. So who led Jesus into the wilderness so he would face the tester? It's the Spirit of God leading Jesus into battle. And in your little handouts, there should be test one, test two, test three. I want to say there's three different tests, but there's one test. There's one big test. It's really one big test, but it's three different tests and all that good stuff. Uh, like I said, um, I'll say this before we start. It's, uh, this is like such a beautiful onion that you can continue to peel and peel and peel and you continue to find stuff. It's so deep and so amazing. We'll see how far we could go today. I'm just kidding. I, I only have like three layers, but you can continue to keep on going and going. And it's so amazing. But how would even Matthew know to write this? How would Matthew know to write this? Because he wasn't there. There was nobody there except the devil and Jesus and perhaps some angels. And how would, how would Matthew know? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't he know? Because Jesus told the disciples this story, saying this is important to know. 
before Jesus actually begins his ministry, as you might have in your subtitles um, <clears throat> afterwards, I said, this is an important story for you to know about my identity. And so we go to the first part. And it says, uh, after the Spirit led him into the wilderness, says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you think about this test, if you had the power to satiate your hunger, why in the world wouldn't you? What is really going on here? If I am hungry and I know I can make my instant noodles, why in the world wouldn't you start boiling water and then opening up that package? What is really going on here? Jesus was hungry, but here's what is going on. The tempter or the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God. So there is a connection here that we can't miss if you're going to get this story right. The connection is right after Jesus gets baptized, the spirit of God descends like a dove, affirming, and then a voice comes with the spirit of God saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The tempter comes, the tester comes, and says, are you really the son? Are you really the son of God? If you are the son of God, then do this. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. <clears throat> and Jesus here responds with, a Bible verse, which is really interesting too, because you would think superpowers, uh, like great like characters that have incredible cosmic power, they would come together and they would shoot laser beams out of their eyes and put energy balls in their hands and shoot them. No, they, they don't do that. In fact, how do they fight? How, how does this prize fight happen? It's not the way we would initially think. Jesus is not flying all over the place and be like, and then punching Satan with 50,000 punches in less than a millisecond and Satan taking it and be like, I'm coming back at you. That's not what happens here. Jesus responds in this epic, supernatural, cosmic battle with a Bible verse. And so there's something that we have to get here. And, and we said it, be, I said it the last time I was up here. Anytime there is um, a Bible verse written out there, why don't we just put it up on the screen so we see it in context? Is that okay? So we'll take uh, what Jesus quoted, which was from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Do we have that up there? Oh, we don't have it? Okay. Not today, guys. Okay. Um, maybe next time. But. Um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 to 6. I'm just going to read it for you. And Jesus' response is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciples his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. This brings us back to what was initially said in chapter two, out of Egypt I called my son. We see here uh, just this correlation between the exodus and what Jesus is going through. Here we see Jesus is showing us again that he is the federal head. He is the one that will bear responsibility for his people. Exodus pointed forward to Jesus like we talked about, but it also pointed back to Eden. So it points forward to Jesus, but it also points back to Eden because it goes all the way back to Adam when Adam would fail the test. And Jesus here is not failing the test, but he's actually fighting back with scripture. Why didn't Jesus turn the stone into bread? I mean, if you had all the power in you, you could, you have so much strength in your bones, in your body, that you could stretch out your arm, turn a knob, make gas come out, fire goes and then you put a stove, a pot, over with water, and then you could open that package, put it in, three minutes, boom, you're good. If you had, even you, who have this, this not, not even a fraction amount of Jesus' power, can do this, why would Jesus not do this? And number one, because Jesus understood where he was and the reason why he was there. He understood that this was a testing period. And number two, the adversary or the devil, the devil uh, is, is translated devil, diabolos, but it's, it really means adversary. The adversary challenges Jesus' identity. How does the devil or the adversary challenge Jesus' identity by pointing out his circumstances, his circumstances? Saying, he's saying this, if you really are the son of God, you would never be hungry. You will never go through this hard time. The Son of God would never be hungry. So the challenge goes deeper into trust. If you are the Son of God, you would not go through these circumstances. I'll give you a little heads up. We actually have taken these three tests and we failed all three tests in our own lifetimes and all the federal heads before us. We failed all the way back to Adam. But Jesus here is also being tested that same test. If you are the son of God, you wouldn't go through these circumstances. And number three, why didn't Jesus turn the stone into bread? If God leads and disciplines his children, and he does, and he does, then he is saying the circumstances that you go through are not your enemy. I hope you're hearing this. The circumstances that you are going through is not your enemy. Jesus' circumstances do not define who God is, nor does it define who God says he is. Jesus' circumstances do not define who God is, nor does it define who God says he is. Indeed, Jesus says this, humans do not live on bread alone. 
We do not live on bread and bread. We went over this bread can also mean food. And if you're, in, you know, if you're Korean, you also know that rice also means food. So here, bread just means food too. It could also mean bread, of course. But humans just don't live on bread alone. Humans just don't live on sustenance or subsistence living. There is a greater purpose. And we need to know, humans all need to know that we fit and we belong somewhere. And you don't need a guru to tell you this. But Jesus here is showing us that in the word is where the answer to your purpose in life is. Bread can sustain you, but can it make you truly live? To truly live, obviously, come on, to truly live, what do you need? To truly live, you got to own a nice house. Nope, that's not it. To truly live, you got to have a nice car. Nope. You got to have nice children. Nope. To truly live, you need more than these things. And Jesus is showing us to truly live, you need the word of God. You would think that an epic battle between two powerful forces would include lightsabers, the force, mighty shows of natural and supernatural power. But here we are shown that this great battle is fought with words. Words are the weapon and Jesus is wielding the word of God. This supernatural battle that we see here is showing us something really incredible, and I'm just going to peel one more extra layer. It's showing us not about the origin of evil. Uh, a lot of people want to know where the origin of evil is, so they'll look at Ezekiel, they'll look at Isaiah, they'll look at some passages in Revelation. Oh, this is, this is uh, to be, devil means enemy, and Satan is just a title. It's not a name. So Satan is actually a title. This being that's challenging Jesus doesn't even have a name. Uh, and so <clears throat> this is not showing us the origin of evil. As maddening it might be, you need to know this is where the origin of evil is. Uh, it's not showing us the origin of evil, but it's showing us something even more important. It's showing us what God is doing about evil. What is God doing about evil is what we see here in this supernatural battle. Test one, your circumstances do not dictate who you are. Test two, then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. The devil here goes, oh, you have this weapon? I have this weapon too, bro. And he also quotes from the Bible. Which Bible verse does he quote from? He quotes from Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, to be exact, he's, he quotes, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you fight, uh, strike your foot against the stone. So he's like, you know what? Throw yourself down and hear. Here's a word. So we actually do see this back and forth, which is just incredible. And the devil quotes Psalm 91, 11 and 12. And this is really interesting because what does the devil quote? He quotes this psalm and he's saying these things in the psalm. And are they true? Are they true? The answer is yes, it's true. What the, it's, it's in the Bible, it's true. God will command his angels concerning Jesus they would bear him up and protect him lest he would strike his foot against the stone. So what's the big deal here? 
just throw yourself off. And because this is true. And this is amazing because this, has, this is reminiscent. Remember, we will go back to Exodus, but Exodus points back to Eden. Remember when the devil would come and he would say something a little bit different. He would change it just ever so slightly. A little bit of a massage here. A little bit of a manipulation here. And he goes, did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Because what is Psalm 91 about? If you look at Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2, the very first two verses, it says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And it is about God protecting his Messiah, his loved ones. It is about God protecting, but here in verse two, it shows you what the point of the psalm is. The point of the psalm is saying, God is my refuge, my fortress. It's about trust. What is trust? The whole psalm is about who I lean on. The psalm is about trusting God, making him your refuge and fortress. And the devil takes the psalm and manipulates it ever so slightly, so deviously, and says, the psalm is really about your protection. It's about your health and wealth and prosperity. If you really are the son of God, did God really say you, could, you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? This is what we fall for even today. Even today. This is what makes me incredibly sad because our brothers and sisters, which you guys, our brothers and sisters, we need to know what the Bible is saying and why it's saying. Otherwise, when we massage it a little bit, when we manipulate it a little bit, it changes the whole meaning. And we start falling for something that's not true. That's not true at all. Um, this is a few decades ago. A few decades ago, there was a whole movement in Korea uh, because the churches were growing and people, people started telling each other, you had to speak tongue. You had to speak in the spiritual tongue to receive Christ. This is not true. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it. But if you ever slightly so massage it, then you can start thinking like that. And so the larger church came together. This is in Korea. The larger church came together and said, if you say that to receive salvation, you need tongue, then that is heretical. And we cannot accept you in this Christian community. So people stop saying it. But these like pockets of churches still remain that, okay, okay, you don't have to be saved. I mean, you don't have to speak tongue to be saved, but you, you should speak tongue. I mean, that's like a given. It's like, where are we going? Where in the Bible are we seeing this? And then, you know, I, I, I kind of joke around with a lot of things, but maybe it is a serious issue that we should talk about. Like when we speak in tongue, like I should be able to understand you. And they're like, oh, what about the angelic tongue? Angelic tongue, Pastor Eugene. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Okay, first of all, in First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, is the only time Paul mentions something called angelic tongue. And he's talking in hyperbole. And he says right after that, if I don't have long, if I don't have love when doing these things, I'm like a clanging cymbal. Or a loud gong. It's just garbage. That's what he's comparing it to. That's the only time. But 
let's say that's true. All right, let's go back to angels. Angels ever come to any human being in the history or in any of scripture and come to you and start going, do they ever do that? And then you have to be like, please give me interpretation. Did you ever have to do it in the Bible? Or did they come and speak to you in Hebrew, in Korean, in English? Whatever language that you were, that's when the angels would give you that language. If it was Aramaic, that's what the angels talked to Joseph in, Aramaic. If it was Hebrew, that's what they talked to he. And if it was Greek, that's what, that, that, that's what the angels talked to the apostles in. Wasn't it your own language? So what is going on with this thing? And so we are trying to make things out of things that weren't there. But I am saying the danger of, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Just keep this. Keep this. It's in our heritage. What's the big deal? And I'll tell you what the big deal is. If you ever so slightly start massaging and manipulating scripture so it fits your own needs and your own ego, look at me. Look at what I can do. I'm so Christian. I'm so powerful. Who is manipulating you? Because the scripture isn't moving you now. Something else is. And this is what we have to watch out for. And the devil comes and twists this psalm. It's not about trust and reliance on God. It's about your health. It's about your wealth. It's about your prosperity. You believe in God, then there's no way God will let anything bad happen to you. Where is that in the Bible? And how do you fight something like that? How do you fight a lie like that? How do you fight such deceit like that when so many people have fallen that I'm crying and weeping over my brothers and sisters who's falling for this? How do you fight something like that? With the word of God. That's how you fight something like that. And Jesus comes back and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where's that from? That's also from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Just two chapters back in chapter 6, he says this. Um, the scriptures say this. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off, from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah, and we read this in Exodus chapter 17. The Israelites were a little bit thirsty. It's like, is God really with us? So Moses had to hit that rock with the staff. You guys remember this if you're with me? And so you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. Massah, of course, means test. And so don't test God, but keep his commandments. Don't test God, keep his commandments. Testing God, keeping his commandments. What's the correlation here? Keeping his commandments is trusting him. Keeping his commandments is saying, I trust you, God. Keeping his commandments is trusting. Yes, it's a garb that you wear. And you, if you continue to read chapter, uh, chapter six, it's like something that you put on so the nations see when we follow God's commandments, the nations see that God is real, that God is powerful, that God is with us, God is Emmanuel. And when you trust in him, following his commandments, you're showing the world what tribe you belong to and you're showing the world who you belong to by keeping his commandments. God's people are publicly stating that God, Yahweh, is their God. Why didn't Jesus jump off the high point of the temple? Because 
God is not a genie that you, you can pull out whenever you want. You believe in God, then of course nothing, will, nothing bad will happen to you. What is that really saying? That means you get to pull God out. What is so really bad about this? That means you get to pull him out whenever you think you think something is bad. God is not a genie because that is not making God God. That's making you God because you get to pull him out whenever you think something is bad, that you think you need fixing. That's making you God. That's forcing God into your service. And that's not how the relationship between God and his son works. That's what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is accepting and submitting to the circumstances that God has put on him and has ordained, no matter how difficult it is. He doesn't make the father perform tricks for him. You see, the, the incredible part here is Jesus doesn't refute the passage that Satan quotes, but he refutes the application. If Jesus was pushed off, if Satan went, took him to the temple and pushed him off, would the angels catch him? Yes, but that isn't the point. That's not the point. You can't mold scripture to fit your own agenda. The word of God dictates our life, even though our life may be difficult, and this difficulty is hard to swallow. God is God, and he is not your genie. Test three. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. The tester changes tactics here. What is the one thing he changes and doesn't say again? He doesn't say, if you are the son of God. Yes, of course, you're all with me. Yeah, okay. So he doesn't say, if you are the son of God. He doesn't say this. He just says, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. The tester doesn't change his tactics because he doesn't open this way because he now goes, okay, we're going to go a totally different way. Is Jesus destined to be king? If you've read all of the three previous chapters about the prophecy of the Messiah, is Jesus destined and prophecy to be king, the Messiah? The answer is yes. So what is the devil doing here? What is Satan doing here? He knew, and Jesus knows too, that he is going to have to go through a very hard and difficult time. Life will be difficult. Just look at the first 40 days of being after being baptized. Why would you have to go through all this if you are the son of God? If you become a Christian and immediately something hard befalls you, we wouldn't normally think, I just became a child of God. I've given my life to him. Why is life getting harder? It's exactly what a normal person would say and think. And this is what the devil is doing. Why do you have to go through all this, Jesus? Because in the end, doesn't the ends justify the means? Don't go through all this pain, Jesus. There's an easier way. Don't worship God, but worship me. 
Throughout history, we see the ramifications of this evil wrought upon the world. Don't worship God of the scriptures. Leader after leader now come into power with no love or worship for the true eternal God, the Yahweh God, but they instead promise to end government corruption. And we make them leader. Who is that? Mussolini. They say things like, Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer, one people, one empire, one leader, and you elect Hitler. Leader after leader come into power, and what happens? The 20th century, the 1900s, were the bloodiest, deadliest century in all of history. It doesn't get better that we reject God because the ends do not justify the means. You have something good. I mean well, guys. I mean well. A lot of people, when I was, um, when I was teaching youth, a lot of people would say, but I mean well. What's the big deal? You know, what's the big deal if I cheat a little here, copy some answers here, or finagle my way in here? My intentions are good. My intentions are good. You know, and then you know what you're going to do. And I was like, when you grow up, you're going to say this exact same thing. What's the big deal? I can shake some money off of this. I can make some maneuvers here. My intentions are good. And I will respond, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. Don't go through this pain, Jesus. It's about the ends, isn't it? In the end, you're going to be king. Why don't you just take it? Easy. There's an easier way. Don't worship God. Worship me. And we see in history, when we make this true in our lives, that the ends justify the means, the most horrific acts of history are done. The bloodiest century we just passed. And this is what prompts Jesus to have this visceral reaction. Be gone, Satan. Get out of here. Because the core of who we are is worship. The core of who we are is worship. Worship is meant for God and God alone. And worshiping God could mean your circumstances might get tough. And I sympathize. My sister, my brother, I sympathize with you. Worshiping God might mean that your circumstances get tougher. Worshiping God might mean that you would lose your job as a licensed teacher. Worshiping God might mean less network opportunities at work, making you forego those promotions and pay raises. Worshiping God could mean ostracization in the public arena. Worshiping God can mean even sheer contempt from your friends and even your own family members, public persecution, and yes, even death in the world. You thought I was talking about you, but I was talking about Jesus. He went through all these things. When we couldn't handle it anymore, we compromised the created order, injecting quarreling, fight, murder, chaos, and all manner of evil, but Jesus did not. And then we subjected him to our evil, and God put on him our sins, and he died the most humiliating and excruciating death in all of history. This torture 
It was so torturous, so terrible, so humiliating. People said, we can't do this anymore. The most perfect human would have to go through this. But guess what? This perfect human absolutely passed the test. But I have good news for you. His death wasn't in vain. God raised the Messiah, the prophesied one, up again from the dead. And remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that I read, God tells his people to keep his commands. And the one that, if you, if you believe and you do that, it's like putting on a garb. It's like putting on this wear clothing that people would see. Jesus had that garb. And when God raised the Messiah up from the dead, now if you believe in him, if you place your trust in him, if you have faith in him, then he puts his garb on you then it isn't about your circumstances controlling you anymore. Because through Jesus, you can put your trust in God. It isn't about needing a genie to solve all your problems anymore. Because through Jesus, you can still submit to God. It isn't about wandering aimlessly to find the meaning of life. Because through Jesus, we are able to worship the one true king. My brothers and sisters, this is something that Jesus gave us to pass down through generation after generation in Holy Scripture so that we see the truth about what is at stake, what was fought, and what was won for us. That's why we celebrate Jesus. There is no greater God than God. And this is who we worship here in this place, who we worship as his church. Let's pray.